1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: I'm here today with Hui Sang Cho to talk about his new book, The Power of the Brush: Epistolary Practices in Choson, Korea. Welcome to New Books and East Asian Studies, Hui Sang, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today.
1: Uh, thank you so much for having me, Sarah.
2: Of course. Uh, before we move to talking about your book, though, could you ta- say a little bit about how you came to the field? How did you come to work on Korean history and the history of Chosun, Korea in particular?
1: Yeah, this is a yeah, great question to start with, um, and it's kind of yeah, the other complicated story because um, I studied Chinese literature as an undergrad in South Korea, and Probably you might know that the uh, the military service is mandatory in South Korea. So after completing my junior year, I joined the army. And quite interestingly, I joined the uh, the U.S. military stationing in South Korea. And one of the benefits, of course, in joining the, uh, the U.S. military in South Korea is to learn English. At the same time, unlike the, uh, the really strict South Korean army, I had immense of time to delve into what I want after the other nine to five work hours. So during the other 26 months the the military duty, I had m- much time to examine what I want to read. And in the, the late 1990s, when I was in the, uh, in the army um, in South Korea, the translations of so-called you know, the Confucian democracy and Confucian capitalism thrived. And I began to read those literatures. And at that point, I realized that that's the kind of the subject that I wanted to look into. So after completing my military duty, I came back to my college and completing my senior year and then looked into the other graduate schools in the United States. Not, I I knew nothing about how the other graduate pr- programs work uh, in America. And I just prepared TOEFL and GRE and tried to get great points. And in my statements to the schools that I applied for, I mentioned that I'm interested in studying China, Korea, and Japan from ancient times all the way to the other contemporary society. Um, And I'm particularly interested in Confucianism. That was the kind of the, the basic idea. And as you can easily imagine, I got tons of rejection letters from the graduate schools that I applied for, but for whatever reason, Columbia admitted me for their terminal master's program So as soon as I arrived at Columbia, I began to talk with faculty members there and began to express my passion in Confucian capitalism, Confucian democracy, and things like that. And they mentioned that nobody's interested in those topics. And they knew that I came from Korea, and they knew that I studied Chinese literature. So they just suggested that I just try some courses in the the Korean history and Chinese history. And um, I took some courses taught by my, le- my late advisor, Professor cha Kim Ha-bush. And yeah, she did not like my research agenda, of course. Yeah, I, I basically mentioned that I'll do everything that is related to East Asia. And she just suggested that to begin to read the, the writing collection of um, really prominent Confucian scholars of Korea, given that I'm interested in Confucianism. So during the, uh, the, my master's years at Columbia for two years, I read the, uh, the writing collections of Tege Yihwang, whose face appears on the, uh, the 1001 banknote of South Korea, which is the equivalent of um, dollar bill in the United States. So Taekae Yihwang could be kind of the, uh, the Korean version of George Washington. And I read his writing collections twice during my master's years. And the ways in which he presented Confucianism was completely different from what I read from the literatures about Confucian capitalism and Confucian democracy and so on and so forth. So I began to ask some questions about the issues that made me confused. And that was the beginning of the the whole project that ended up becoming my book, The Power of the Brush.
2: I love how it it, it seemed to, that your project went from everything and everything, <laughs> Every, yeah, everything as you true. said, yeah. everything related to East Asia. Uh, but I have to imagine that you know, in in your being interested in everything related to East Asia, there you it seems to it seemed to me at least from reading your book that you are probably interested in other times and places as well beyond East Asia. Uh, and I say that because this is not a comparative book. But at least in my reading, um, I noticed that, it it, you know, I felt at least it had been written with an eye towards the comparative. So you make references throughout the book to other times and places. You mentioned, for example, the American Revolution, Imperial Gazettes in in China, letter writing cultures, you know, throughout the world and history. Um, Was this sort of comparative um, aspect of it important to you and how you wrote this book or how you thought about
1: the book? Yeah, that is a thing. Great question, um, and I think that is the kind of the invitation in which I could talk about yeah, the methodology that I applied in writing this book. Um, and yeah, probably every historian might agree with uh, what I will just mention, because we don't know every social, social cultural practices that I encounter from sources as the, uh, the, the historical actors of the time period understood, right? We were just a given with the uh, the legacies and the remnants of social cultural practices, but we cannot figure out every single aspect of those practices how they unfolded in different time period for different historical actors under different um, uh, historical circumstances. Um, so actually, um, this is not just the uh, the problem that I had, and I also cited this uh, in my book. But the uh, the in here, Bordeaux's book the, um, um, about the, the cultural production, he also mentioned that some social cultural practices were part of the, the self-evident givens of the, uh, the uh, certain situation. Therefore, they remained unremarked. And for this reason, they are unlikely to be mentioned in contemporary accounts, uh, chronicles, uh, or memoirs. And same was true uh, in my observation of epistolary cultures. Uh, of the, uh, the Joseon dynasty Korea especially uh, most prominently in the case of the uh, the spiral letters so um, in retrospect i think the uh, the methodology that i applied was really similar to what psychologist stephen pinker um, mentions as the, the reverse engineering so he uses the, the metaphor so when the, the people were are given a olive peter uh And when they do not know that that particular olive Peter is used to pit the at olives, they have to figure out the function of olive Peter by the examination of the uh, the small parts and put those uh observations together to figure out the uh, over function of olive peters and I think I did the same thing in understanding the uh, the letter writing practices and the uh, the epistolary. Uh, cultures of the the Korea. So when I went into the the archives, I came across different forms and different uh, genres of the the epistolary writings. And because I could not figure out the the exact ways in which they were implemented and appropriated by different historical actors, I kind of engineered the functions of those letters and the the epistolary practices in reverse order. And I began to trace the, the original functions of the um, uh, different kinds of the, the epistolary practices. Um, and for example, I particularly used this methodology in discussing the spiral letters. So um, as you read from my book, uh, it is not difficult to stumble upon the letters bearing the, the spiral forms once you are in the, the, any kind of the, the archives that have uh, the, uh, the 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 writings uh, written during the uh, the second half of the, uh, the Joseon Dynasty, but quite strangely, the Korean people themselves did not even name them. So spiral letters, the terms that are used in this book, is my coinage. At the same time, the 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 later scholars, uh, scholars in the uh, the modern world, they did not pay enough attention uh, to those particular textual forms. So I began to try out the the various possibilities but those possibilities actually came from uh, my familiarity with other epistolary cultures so as you observed from my book i read extensively about the absolute practices in europe the absolute practices in pre-modern islamic world and also read literatures about the the letter writing practice in china and japan and Also, I was interested in the political function of absolute practices, and that led me to read some literatures about the American Revolution in the late 18th century, and so on and so forth. And the observations that I made from those scholarly works about the absolute practices performed in different parts of the world in different time periods led me to ask the same kind of questions for the, uh, my observation made in the, uh, the chosen epistolary culture. So uh, going back to the, uh, the my discussion about spiral letters, I asked four specific questions. So as most people ask, I firstly ask, if it might be related to people's attempt to save textual space. And then going back to my bibliographical analysis of spiral letters that I collected from the archives, and then I proved yeah, it might be relevant question, but it is not yet yeah, the right answer because of these and uh, this and that reasons. And then I move on to the, the second possibility, which is the, the calligraphic aesthetics, which I read extensively from the uh, epistolic the cultures of the pre-modern Islamic world. And then I revisited Korean epistolic uh, culture and try out the possibility of um, calligraphic aesthetics. And Yeah, it might be possible, but it does not work either because of this and that reasons. And then I asked the uh, the possibility of communal reading of the uh, the single sheet of paper, which I came across in my reading about the the textual culture of Jewish communities in Arabia and uh, Egypt. And I tried that. It might be possible, but there are not enough evidence about that kind of communal reading in Korean context. And lastly, I, I talked about the um, the spiral letters as kind of the textual self-fashioning, and yeah, I cannot fully uh, approve those possibilities. But this kind of reverse engineering kind of expand the uh, the intellectual scope with which the uh, the scholars and the readers could kind of handle with their own materials and their own exposure to the, the different time period and different textual practices. So. Again, the benefit of the, uh, the reverse engineering in dealing with the other uh, material, uh, archival materials um, reside upon the fact that we could kind of open up the various possibilities in um, dealing with different archival materials. And in that sense, I think even if you are not doing the other comparative history per se, uh, reading expensively and trying out different possibilities for the uh, the subject matters that historians are dealing with, it's really really effective and intellectually fruitful.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you mentioned the. I feel like in your answer there, you both you touched on you know what may what, uh, what makes the work of the historian so difficult, right? Recovering what was unsaid, unwritten at the time because it was so uh, mundane or didn't need to be deemed you know not necessary to comment on, but also what is so great about the work of a of a historian. Um,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> so that's true. You. And another aspect that I would like to add on uh, to this question is the, uh, the something um, very epistemological. So uh, when I presented my uh, book project to, in several uh, occasions, there were some concerns made, by, especially by the, the senior scholars, because they um, kind of labeled me uh, as a lumper vis-a-vis splitters. Um, and uh, one really prominent scholar that he mentioned that um, this kind of tendency of lumping everything together always worked out because I tried to lump them together from the beginning. Um, and there was quite really sharp point to, that can be made out of the, uh, the observation about my work. At the same time, I could not fully agree with him, but I could not fight back because I did not have enough um Explanation about this kind of tendency to lump them together, but uh, over this summer I reread the, the Michel Foucault's *The Order of Things*, and in the second chapter of this book, Foucault was mentioning about the uh, the epistemological trend that uh, changed at the turn of the seventeenth century Europe, and he mentioned that by the end of the sixteenth century, all the um, the scholarly works of the humanists were actually their attempt to find the, uh, the similarities among the, uh, the different uh, historical or literary phenomena that they are dealing with. And that changed from the beginning of the 17th century. So what I want to say is that the, uh, the, 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 by the end of the, uh, the 16th century in the Western European scholarly world, people were all lumpers. But from the beginning of the 17th century, epistolo- epistemological trend actually initiated the, the period of splitters. And I would argue that this tendency of the, the splitting everything else continued to affect the ways in which we create knowledge even until now. And especially because I'm dealing with the the, the East Asia in pre-20th century, um, I think it makes more sense to lean toward on the, the lumpers tendency rather than splitter. So, um, Going back to what Foucault mentioned in the, uh, the Order of uh, Things, he um, used these uh, terms, which I think really useful for uh, the historians working on pre-20th century, um, non-Western world, which he used the, uh, this, uh, the signatures within the, uh, the similitude. So the, uh, the scholars in the Western Europe uh, before the beginning of the 17th century they put enormous emphasis on similitudes, but at the same time, they try to find the slight differences among them, which he labeled uh, as signatures. So I think it would be really uh, useful for the historians to kind of um, be aware of this kind of interaction between similitudes and uh, the small signatures um, living within those similitudes.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: I'm dearly, dearly hope that you sent um, those chapters to your former committee members, um, <laughs> who, who, who phrased it as a problem with your work um, when you were a graduate right.
1: student. I, yeah, I wish I could. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I think that's that's a fabulous reminder um, for you know the history of of uh, the work in which we do that that too has a history, right? That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I feel really terrible now because my next question is, I suppose, of the splitting nature.
1: Um, that's that's just... fine. That's fine. Yeah, let's deliver let's on that.
2: And When we're talking about, you know, the expansive of the, uh, you know, the everything, the reverse engineering, I should note that you mentioned spiral letters in the answer to my previous question, which I think was w- my, one of my personal favorite moments um, of, of your book when you're talking about spiral letters. Um, but to sort of back up to Chosun Korea. Um, Because, you know, much of what happens, um, I think just about everything that happens in your book is happening in what you refer to as the epistolary revolution, right? This surge of letter writing in Chosun Korea, something which you talk about as um, beginning in the mid 16th century. So as a way of sort of like setting the stage um, for this this moment, this surge in letter writing, um, could you sort of just detail what is going on in this time period that is leading to this surge of letter writing? And what were sort of the impacts of it?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the 16th century is a really interesting period for the, uh, the historians of the Joseon dynasty, because it is the time period uh, that is placed right middle of the other dynasty, at the same time, at the end of the 16th century, as we all know, the, uh, the Joseon dynasty underwent the, the massive uh, international war, the uh, the Japanese invasion of Korea from 1592 to 1598. But uh, I'm particularly interested in the changes that I observed at the beginning of the 16th century. And um, um, the, uh, the changes that I observed in the, the diplomatic, political, and the, the cultural changes during the uh, the first half of the uh, the Joseon Dynasty, all converged onto the the letter writing. Quite interestingly, that's why I call it, the the of revolution uh, at the beginning of the sixteenth century. So, firstly, diplomatically, uh, one thing that we have to remember was the uh, the tension between the uh, the Ming Dynasty China and the the Joseon Dynasty from the the establishment of the the Ming Dynasty in 1368. Because yeah, we all know that the, the Korea was really Close to the, uh, the Mongol Yuan, um, culturally, politically, and even biologically, um, and that made the uh, the founder of the, uh, the Ming Dynasty, Zhu Yuanzhang, really afraid of the uh, the potential collaboration between the uh, the Mongols and the Korea. So he. If that happened, he had to deal with yeah, the two different enemies back and forth, right? So that it was the kind of the uh, the uh, just the main source of the diplomatic tension between the, the Ming Dynasty and the, the late Korea and the early Chosen Korea. And this kind of diplomatic tension also affected the uh, the cultural and intellectual interaction between China and Korea. So one of the uh, the most uh, one of the easiest way for Korean scholars to be exposed to the, the most up to date uh, the the scholarship was to send young students to the, the schools in China. But from the beginning of the Ming Dynasty, the uh, the Ming court prohibited Korean scholars in studying the, the Ming state schools and. That became the, the huge issues, especially at the beginning of the fifteenth century, especially during the uh, the reign of King Sejong, which spanned from fourteen eighteen to fourteen fifty. So, the, basically, Korean people were given the books uh, from the, uh, the from Ming China as part of the tributary system, but there was no way to keep themselves. Uh, abreast of the, uh, the most up-to-date interpretations about the, uh, the classics and the uh, new Confucian writings that they received from the, uh, the Ming dynasty, China. So during the, uh, the 15th century, the, uh, the Joseon court requested several times to send Korean scholars to uh, the Ming state schools, but Ming court remained really adamant not to accept any Korean students in their state schools. So Korean people were just on their own. So uh, from the, uh, the mid 15th century, I would argue that the interpretation about the function of Confucianism in Korea diverged from that of the, uh, the contemporary Ming China. And it exacerbated, especially after, uh, indeed the, during the, uh, the f- first half, this half of the 16th century, because of yeah, the rise of uh, Wang Yangming in the, uh, the Ming China because from the, the perspectives of the, the Korean scholars that was the, the really egregious deviation from the, the orthodox neo-confucianism that they read from the uh, the books that they received from China so from this time period on because they did not have direct access to the, the schools in the, the China they began to develop the, the different interpretive strategy on confucian writings at the same time, uh, more interestingly to me, is the, uh, the, the ways in which Korean scholars understood the, uh, the different writing genres diverged from those of uh, Chinese scholars. So it is related to the, uh, the the theme of my book and the Korean scholars began to appreciate letters included in the, uh, the writing collections of the, uh, the Chinese scholars as a really effective uh, pedagogical tool because they were not exposed to the, the interpretation by contemporary Chinese scholars, right? But by reading the correspondence between the, the prominent Chinese Confucian masters and their disciples, indirectly, Korean scholars could expose themselves to the, the really um, sophisticated interpretation of Chinese uh, inter- Chinese version interpretation of Confucian knowledge. And that was the moment when the, uh, the letter writing became the uh, central uh, writing genre in the, uh, the Korean Confucianism. And also politically, 16th century was really interesting because um, the, uh, the, uh, ever since uh, the Joseon dynasty was established in 1392, um, some scholars began to harbor and began to develop different uh, understanding about the function of Confucianism. So most of the, the, the scholar officials who um, became the high-ranking officials in the central government, they understood the Confucianism as the effective means of statecraft. But those who were excluded from the kind of political privilege, who remained in the rural society, uh, bec- um, relying on their study of the, uh, the Confucian classics, they began to understand Confucianism not simply as the political tool, but at the same time, they realized that it could be really effective way of life to boost their status in the other local society. So there were kind of the chasm uh, in the, the scholarly community about the interpretation of Confucianism in terms of their functions. And that became the other huge. Ah, uh, political issues at the beginning of the 16th century, which ended up be- becoming uh, the four major literary purges that span from uh, 1498 all the way to the uh, the uh, the 1595. So politically, that was the yeah, the moment uh, that uh, the Korea was undergoing the the major um, shift in terms of the uh, the application of Confucianism in the uh, the political realm. And culturally, we have to think about the um, the influences um, caused by the invention of Korean alphabet, which was invented in 1444 and uh, promulgated for public usage in 1446. Um, and if you look into the other uh, archival materials uh, produced in the, uh, the 15th century, in the second half of this 15th century, the Korean people were gradually exposed to this new writing system. Um, And they began to try out many different cultural uh, experiments with this new writing system, which included the the translation of Buddhist strass and writing some uh, poems in the the vernacular Korean, and so on and so forth. But what I'd like to highlight was that it took at least half a century in Korea uh, to make its new writing system trickle down to the other general elite classes. And when that happened, one of the, the most immediate writing genres that the, the people began to look into was the, the letter writing. So letter writing was easy to compose. At the same time, it did not... Uh, Create any kind of direct threat to the uh, the educated elite who dominated the uh, the cultural production and uh, the political uh, realm by their relying on their uh, literacy in classical Chinese. And at the same time, this kind of development of mundane and trivial communicative system exposed to exposed the, uh, the educated male elites to this new writing system because they began to communicate with the other uh, female family members in their domestic sphere. So that kind of changes all happened at the beginning of the 16th century. And going back to, the, uh, going back to what I mentioned in answering this question uh, at the beginning, all those changes converged onto the, uh, the letter writing quite interestingly. Um, so that's why I call the beginning of the 16th century as the period of absolute revolution in the history of the Joseon dynasty.
2: No, 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 not at all. And thank you for, I mean, as, as I think your answer made clear, there's a lot going on in this moment. (laughs) So thank you. Thank you for unpacking it all. That was amazingly clear. Um, and I just want to, you know, you, you started to touch on it a little bit there, but the sort of the genre and the, the, um, quality is associated with the genre of the letter, right? Um, You touched on it a little bit when you sort of describing that the space that letters occupy, they're sort of outside a little bit, they're on the margins of elite male literate world, they're not really a threat. Um, And throughout, you know, this book, even though we're talking about it using the word letter, um, there's lots of different kinds of written communication sort of under, you know, that big umbrella of letter that come up Within the book, um, so I'm wondering if you could sort of unpack this a little bit. What when we talk when we talk about letters in this period, um, what is it important for listeners to know about what a letter is in
1: Joseon Korea? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this question is related to what I uh, mentioned earlier about the uh, the uh, distinction between the splitter and lumper, and the uh, the kind of tendency to. Uh, the tendency that we would like to define letters as a genre, I think is the kind of the, uh, the implication of splitters again. And uh, one of the, the main arguments that I tried to make uh, in this book, The Power of the Brush, was the impossibility of defining letters as a single genre. And I think the, uh, the power of letter writing actually came from the opposite because of the impossibility of defining the letters as a single genre, actually empowered letter writers to act more boldly and um, to be a little bit more resourceful in their social and political interactions. And it, this is not just me uh, to, ar- uh, to make this kind of argument. And I also cited this in the earlier part of this book, but the uh, to Jacques Derrida in his book Postcard uh, mentioned that yeah, I probably, yeah, I hope my memory serves me right. But he mentioned that, quote, a Mixture is the letter, also known as the epistle. is not a genre, but all genres, literature itself, unquote. So basically, uh, the Jacques Derrida tried to um, make the, the case that letters, all letters are postcards because there's no kind of definite privacy or definite publicity involved in the letter writing, but it could be basically everything, and everything could be letters. And I tried to make similar kind of argument in the context of the, the chosen epistolary culture in this book, because this kind of versatility of letter writing allowed letter writers to incorporate many different aspects of their life and their ambition as part of the epistolary discourse, so I would argue that it would make more sense to for us to focus on letters as a discourse rather than as a genre, because virtually everything can be incorporated as the content of the other letters. So that's the kind of the, the basic arguments that I wanted to make, and to take one step further, in my book, I invited the readers to kind of think about the, um, the theoretical implication uh, that my arguments makes, and I cited from the uh, the Raymond Williams' uh, did book, the Marxism and Literature, and one of the chapters in that book is the uh, the multiplicity of text, um, and he kind his Marxist interpretation of intertextuality is really Interesting to me because he argued that actually the, uh, the, liter- the our interpretation of literature could be complete when whenever we look around the uh, the non-literary text that surround the, uh, the literary text that we look into. So basically, he put enormous emphasis on the mutual influences between the, the literary text and non-literary text in the, uh, the formation of what we call literary genres. And I think the same is true um, in understanding the, the epistolary practices in the uh, the chosen Korea. So if we'd like to understand the, the epistolary writing, we've got to pay attention to the interaction between epistolary writing and non-epistolary texts uh, that were produced simultaneously in the, the social interactions because all those seemingly non-epistolary writings ap- ended up becoming the other part of epistole discourses in the the actual um, implementation of letter writing in human life.
2: I'm going to need a moment to process thinking about malleability and versatility and the multiplicity of texts. (laughs) But that makes perfect sense in thinking about um, your book. And especially, you know, you talked about the interactions between um, epistolary writing and non-epistolary texts, which I feel is sort of tackled, at least as I understood it, sort of tackled head-on um, when we get to something that you mentioned a little bit earlier, sort of the packaging of um, letters as uh, in 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 the process of um, creating neo-Confucian discourses and sort of understanding what. Um, what is going on, as you, as you put it, um, with Confucianism while being cut off um, from China, as it were. I'm very clumsily stumbling around here. But what I'm gesturing towards is where sort of we get to in your book when we hit chapter three. Um, so and I'm thinking here in particular, how this chapter sort of really focuses on um, how one Neo-Confucian scholar is working to elevate letters as an academic Genre. And then you sort of follow this through in, in later chapters of your book. Um, chapter four builds on this, showing how the same group sort of embrace letters as an academic text, building local academy networks and creating um, something that you've sort of touched on a little bit already a new identity um, of non official local scholars. So again, I said that I was clumsily gesturing, gesturing here and stumbling through it. Um, but I was wondering if you could do a much better job than I have in sort of unpa- un, um, unpacking a little bit this move as letters become academic texts. How does that move sort of happen? And what happens once, once that shift takes place?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that makes me circle back to what I mentioned about the, uh, the situation of the 16th century Korea. So again, um, it is the uh, the the transformation of letters into academic texts was attributed to the uh, the kind of diplomatic tension between Ming China and the other uh, chosen Korea, especially in the early period of those two dynasties in Northeast Asia. And when Korean scholars did not have direct interaction with the uh, um, uh, with the uh, the Ming intellectuals uh, in the flesh, they had to rely on their innovative reading strategy. And as you just pointed out, the uh, the, the main figure uh, in my book, the, uh, the Yi Huang, yeah, he found the, uh, the kind of repossessed letters, not simply as the, uh, the, the kind of the, uh, the remnants of the, uh, the daily practices of uh, the past scholars, but as the kind of the, uh, the different kind of interpretation about Confucian philosophy and Confucian theories. And that made him kind of repackaged the uh, the letters as a whole. So instead of asking his students to read the the letters left behind by the uh, the song Confucian master, Shi, he anthologized them and his intellectual offspring revisited the anthology made by Tugei Yiwang, and they created various different annotations on this anthology. And sometimes sometimes they revisited the, the writing collections of Jushi and kind of recycle the other uh, letters that left behind by that take himself in his process of uh, the anthologization. So there were kind of the really interesting going back and forth between uh, the other past and uh, the other present because of this attention to uh, the other letter writing. But more interestingly, uh, what I'd like to highlight was the impact of this kind of transformation of letters as academic texts made in uh, the social interactions amongst uh, the Confucian intellectuals during the, uh, the late Chosen period because they read uh, Jewish letters extensively and they read the, the, uh, the Jewish letters anthologized by Tege and the, the later scholars, Tege's disciples, uh, put together various kinds of the, the annotations on their the Jewish letters and they later anthologized uh, Tege's letters So there were different kinds of letter anthologies, but they also realized that at some point, if they ended up becoming successful Confucian scholars themselves, their letters would be revisited by their descendants and disciples. So uh, to put it differently, so-called the secrecy and privacy that we take for granted in the other person correspondence kind of evaporated during the, the second half of the, the Chosun dynasty. All educated male, at least, they knew that sometimes their letters would be circulated beyond the the, the original uh, addressee. And that would make the, the meaning of their letters completely uh, different ways. So they kept that in mind, uh, that their letters would be read by hidden Uh, future hidden readers. So that made the uh, the letter writing, their attitude about the the letter writing completely change it. And another aspect that I'd like to uh, highlight is the ways in which those letters were included in the uh, the writing collection of the letter writers or in the uh, the anthologies of letters in the later time period. So if you compare those letters printed as a book with the, uh, the original manuscript letters, you would find them completely different so sometimes the uh, the editors they kind of rephrased the every single part of the letters so at one glance it is really difficult to realize that those printed uh that those letters included in printed books were actually came from manuscript letters that you have uh from the other archive um so um What I want to say is that there were kind of uh, different attitudes about the letter writing practice emerged because of this this kind of academic usage of letters. But at the same time, people began to touch on letters heavily um, when they transformed from manuscript letters uh, and when they were entering the, uh, the printed world.
2: All I have to say is when we get to the point where there are anthologies of emails, we are in trouble. (laughs) Um <laughs> <So, Absolutely. laughs> listening yeah. to you sort of talk about, uh, you know, I was just reflecting on, uh, as you said, we take for granted that when we look at a letter that it, is, it was secret in some way. And what you're sort of pointing to is um, the understanding among chosen um, uh, writer letter writers that their letters were that 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 secrecy was not holding true. Right. I'm just thinking about that. and <laughs> light of of current, uh, you know, letter writing or email writing practices, I always assume that no one else is going to read my emails but the person I sent them to. Not so in this period. Um, So in talking about
1: the secrecy of the the abstract practices, I made the uh, the kind of the reference point in the Hillary Clinton's email incident. Mm, Yeah, yeah, we, we took it for granted that our emails will be private and remain as a secret between the other senders and addresses. But we don't know the, uh, the future of the, the emails that we keep in our inbox, because who knows? So that's really <laughs> scary, but that's the reality.
2: That's terrifying. <laughs> but, I know. But that's a, a great reflection point, even just thinking about um, the ways in which um, we approach as historians um, documents created in the past, right? As you as you touched on those letters that you were reading, were not um, written with secrecy in mind. They were never intended to be so. So I'm just thinking about how something like that would change how you yourself approached letters, but also how um, I imagine that. That is not perhaps always how these letters were approached by historians. Um, so that's a fascinating sort of moment for me in just thinking about uh, method, you know, methodology and how to approach these, um, these, these writings. Um, and I mean, so we're talking about um, these, you know, letters changing, <laughs> being understood in these new ways. Um, And of course, this leads then to, in sort of the arc of uh, your book, the later part, which sort of looks at what happens um, once these letter-writing practices are really embedded in and really embraced by um, local literati. And here you sort of you look at how uh, local literati um, use—I almost want to say—some of the lessons that they've learned, but. How 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 this sort of informs their own political activism, (laughs) and this sort of really comes to the head um, in how they use joint memorials, different the the, slightly different um, type of text, perhaps. And how this then, as you say in the book, fundamentally transformed the political performances of late Chosun literati. And there's a lot going on in this part of the book, but I'm wondering if you could walk us through some examples of these political performances. What kinds of political activism do we see, you know, local literati being involved in towards the end of your book that would have been really impossible for (laughs) local Mm. literati
1: in earlier periods? Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, the uh, the reading letters about the, the political activism was the, the one of the, the most exciting parts of my research because what I found really fascinating was the the, the my discovery of how resourceful the, the local literate were, particularly during the, the second half of the Joseon Dynasty. And they were kind of the, the genius of the, the communication. So they interlinked the correspondence between the individual scholars with the collective communication between the different scholarly communities in different regions and that culminated in the uh, the kind of joint memorials presented to the throne so it was kind of the all interlinked so individual correspondence developed into the, the group communication and sometimes the, the group communication trickled down all the way to the, the individual correspondence and sometimes that became the nationwide mobilization of the, uh, the, the confusion literacy across the country and this was not something that the, the particular group div- uh, invented or developed but that emerged simultaneously during yeah, the 16th century of the period that I call yeah, the the era of apostolic revolution. And of course, their uh, descendants and disciples learned those practices from their predecessors and developed more um, so, as developed as a more sophisticated uh, the, the way of political mobilization toward the end of the, uh, the Joseon dynasty. And especially what I found really interesting was the, uh, the kind of interaction between this kind of absolute practices and the, uh, the circulation of political news. So the, uh, the time period that I look into in this book is the, uh, the, the era before the, the mass communication and the, the journalism. So only available political news uh, was coming from the circulation of government newsletters, which were designed to be circulated only amongst the, uh, the incumbent government officials. But going back to the, uh, the resourcefulness and, and versatility of letter writing and the, uh, the letter writers, they always copied and attached those government newsletters as part of their Correspondence with their friends and family members, and that kind of circulation of political um, news, always sparked the, the new kind of political uh, activism in different parts of the uh, the country, and it is somewhat uh, similar to the uh, the what Benedict Anderson called the, uh, the imagined communities, right? So the intellectuals in during the second half of the Chosun dynasty, they could imagine themselves as part of that same political community, consuming the, uh, the same kind of political news almost simultaneously because they knew that other scholars in different regions, they were also exposed to the, uh, the hand copied government newsletters circulated in their own epistolary networks. And what is more interesting was that in the, uh, the chosen political system, the king was always expected to respond to the, uh, the memorials presented to him. So when there the are certain groups of the, the non-official scholars from the other rural area, they succeeded in submitting the other memorials individually and collectively, the king was expected to respond to those memorials. And the contents of that those particular memorials and yeah, the king's responses were included in government newsletters. So basically, the different political opinions circulated across the country almost simultaneously, and people were kind of joining the, the political discourse uh, with various epistolary genres available to them uh, from the individual correspondence all the way to the the, uh, the circular letters in the regional level. And sometimes when they became active enough, Uh, they submitted uh, the joint memorials to the throne, which I extensively discussed toward the end of my book. Um, And this kind of uh, uh, very effective circulation of political news was not something that could be imagined uh, before the the era of epistolary uh, revolution. So I think the the inventive and creative usage of uh, epistolary writing by the, uh, the so historical actors across the, uh, the Joseon dynasty made the, the political topography quite dynamic and unpredictable because only if you could join the uh, the absolute practices with strong will and some wit, you could easily join the uh, nationwide political discourse and part of the uh, the leading group.
2: I love that phrase. Only if you had strong will and wit, um, <laughs> would you be would you would you be good enough to sort of uh, participate? Um,
1: yeah. So yeah, that's it's kind of the uh, the strong case that I wanted to make. So only if you realize what kind of textual culture is most popular and most effective in that given time period, regardless of Irrespective of the quality of the claim that you're making, you will garner the attention and you will be successful in creating enough coordination in regional and national level to create political commotion at the central government. So that was the kind of the really radical argument that I wanted to make toward the end of my book.
2: Mm-hmm. And as I'm thinking about sort of towards the end of your book, um, of course, we've been sort of, you know, touching on the main chapters <laughs> of your book. Um, but right at the end, you you have this epilogue. And I wanted to ask you about it, uh, because this, I feel, is sort of connected to the, you know, the inventive and the creative <laughs> way of using letters, as you've been mentioning, um, because this epilogue is titled Legacies of the Chosun Epistolary Practices. Um and so before we sort of finish um, our discussion of your book as a whole, I just, you know, it's more of an open question, but is there anything you wanted to sort of touch on about the legacies that you sort of, you know, either what is discussed in this epilogue or beyond um, what sort of happens um, afterwards? Is there anything that you feel is um, important to note?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually the uh, the episode revolution that I did, uh, that I discussed in my book kind of faded out uh, with the, um, introduction of modern postal system and the introduction of modern newspapers and so on and so forth but it was really striking uh, to find some kind of remnants of traditional absolute practices in the, the contemporary social and political activism in South Korea and that that was really fascinating yeah and it, yeah as I mentioned in my epilogue, those kind of uh, revisiting to the other traditional epi- epistolary practices were attempts to grab attention, mostly rather than the, the uh, creating the, the effective political um, effects. But still, I think that kind of historical memory is really fascinating because we always have the opportunity to appropriate the kind of repertoire uh, for different political or social purposes, right? So we still have this kind of potential to um, encounter those traditional practices for completely different purposes. So I did not speak that out in the epilogue, but that is the kind of the implication that I wanted to make as I close my book.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the examples that you look on in that epilogue definitely speak to (laughs) the creative and inventive sort of refashioning and reimagining and sort of, you know, recalling these older traditions in order to make a a spectacle, as you said, uh, a very visible point. But now that we've sort of come to the end of your book and thus our conversation, uh, we've come to my very last question, which is simply, what are you working on next? What is inspiring you at the moment?
1: Um, yeah, actually, the other, my first book was the other part of my dissertation. So I still have something left from my um, research uh, that I conducted as a graduate student. And one of the things that I wanted to develop from the left of the part was still about the interaction between the practices of reading and writing and how they influenced and were influenced by the social, political, and cultural changes uh, during the Joseon dynasty. And for my next book, I'm more interested in the, uh, the culture of storytelling, both verbal and written, how the ways in which people um, were talking about historical personages or some kind of past events um, affected the ways in which we understand our own situation. So the new book project covers from the, uh, the late 16th century all the way to the, uh, the 1970s. And the, uh, the main flow of the, uh, the story would look into the, uh, the different kinds of storytelling about a ever since he died in 1570, all the way to the, uh, the military dictatorship in South Korea during the uh, uh, 1970s. Uh, but at the same time, I'm equally interested in the, uh, the storytelling that Short lived in particular time period. So as for the, the Taegei Hwang, the ways in which people talked about him, Kind of survived in different political and social contexts from late sixteenth century all the way to the present, but there are a whole bunch of different stories that short lived in particular moment of Korean history. So I'm kind of interested in the uh, the kind of similarities and differences between this long lived story about Tiger Iwang and short lived uh, stories that. Only appeal to the other uh, people in the, uh, the particular time period. So the basic argument that I try to make is the um, the really interesting dynamic between the other uh, narrativity and the historicity in the making of modern Korea from late 16th century all the way to the present. So I'm still interested in the uh, the practices of writing and reading. And as you sense from the, uh, the my book, I'm a big fan of the, uh, the bibliographical research. So one of the, uh, the arguments that I'm trying to make in my second book is also the observation of the, the material characteristics of different textual media, how the application of different textual media affected the culture of storytelling uh, mutually. So that is the, uh, the basic idea that I have about my next project.
2: That all sounds fascinating. From I mean, storytelling to practices of writing and reading, and bibliography having <laughs> playing a role there. Um, best of luck with that project Um, and thank thank you you, and thank you so much for this one I mean the power of the brush it's a real testament to the you know the strength the value of reading expansively and lumping um, of (laughs) of reverse engineering and paying attention to materiality so congratulations on this book and best of luck for your next one
1: yeah thank you again for having me